Well, I was really grieved last week when I found out that I had to give up my title of being for so long as it's been, as I can remember, the shortest preacher I know. All right. Away with such jokes. I do thank God for the privilege of last week. And, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, which I don't have, obviously, by the specs on my face. But I felt like, wow, what, what Derek said this morning was really simple, and all that I said for over an hour could have been said. <laughs> That's what I was trying to say. And that sheet, the essence, I felt like I used so much time, I didn't have time to walk through it and say, the main thing is, State the offense, and that has helped me get over personal issues, and then I know how to go to my brother or sister or mother or whoever and talk about how I feel. Sometimes those offenses are serious, and I'd like us to look at one this morning, and other times, I just got my feelings hurt because... I am a thin-skinned person, more than you know, <laughs> more than I'd like to. No, I'm, I'm willing to admit, I just want to grow up, and I need God's help, and I'm thankful for Jesus' way that it really is simple. If you would, turn with me. No, not so fast. I forgot. I'm sorry. I am I'm not going to let you be privy my time constraints today to help me gain back my title of being the shortest preacher. <laughs> but I do want to encourage you that my goal is to be less than half of last time, just in case you guys get nervous. I was nervous. Wednesday night we had a devotional, I told you, and before we started I said, guys, if I go more than what o'clock? I'm going to ask Brother Derek to pick me up and physically remove me. And he said, I'll just give you a hug, brother. I said, Virgil, would you? He was off carrying a baby, and it went till, was it 1230? No, I'm teasing. But I better stick to the point here. Okay, so we want to have a clarification announcement about the... Oh, yeah, about the Wednesday meeting coming up. I was going to say something to clarify and encourage about that. But before I do, I wanted to make a clarification statement about a moment in the sermon last week where I pretended that my notes represented the church constitution and flippantly, I better read so I stick to script. All right. During, excuse me, I even have my glasses on. Maybe I'll try them off. Last week during my serpent, I flippantly tossed a piece of paper over my shoulder. In context, that piece of paper represented the church constitution. My point was not that we should not honor our church's constitution. So that's the point of this, is to be clear, right? So not what it may have appeared to be. Rather, it was to illustrate the futility 
of any kind of law or man's writing to address or fix the problem of sin. What is the chaff to the wheat? If we aren't obeying God's word to walk honestly and obediently, constitutional amendments are superfluous. I would further assert that though I can imagine some tweaks to the Constitution here, they are no guard against sin any more than the perfect law of God was effective in preventing crime or apostasy in Israel. The answer to our sin is in Jesus Christ being made a new creature through faith in him as we will hopefully get to in short order. <clears throat> so may we walk and make our boast in him. Okay, so then the, that's my clarification statement, which I hope clears up any doubts. And if it doesn't, please come to me. Just like, you know, the Matthew 18.1. I don't take offense in that. I welcome it. I want to be at peace with you, my brother, my sister, anybody, everybody. That's what Christ came at Christmas time. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. That is the heart of our Father, and so that's how we should be. But my blabbering mouth, and somebody has recently said in the multitude of words, there wanteth not sin, yikes. Hmm? Doesn't mean Yusef don't talk, but it means be careful. Okay, three meetings coming up. Well, one's behind us and two ahead, so just a quick recap. The first meeting brought three primary questions to the four. So it was to clarify the questions. And of all the 40 we found, they fit neatly into three buckets. And we have those in front of us. So the second meeting is this Wednesday night. So this is Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, three days hence. At, we failed to clarify last week, I think. At 6.40 p.m., so... That's the date and the time. We are going to meet to discuss these three topics. Number one, definitions regarding pastors and deacons. Their respective roles and responsibilities. How they intersect, I should say, their respective roles and responsibilities for pastor and for deacon. How they intersect and work in harmony working together to accomplish a mutual goal. Clearing up anything fuzzy. So that's the goal, is to address these questions. Second question at hand is a question about the topic of how to conduct church discipline here at Fellowship Baptist Church. Okay, and then third question is about music policy. Who makes it and why? And we, we want this to be, it's not just a one-way street. Okay, you got that? No, it's there to talk about it and to share our minds, our questions, concerns, perhaps suggestions in a healthy forum or format, publicly, decently, and in order. 
Is that something we all agree with? I hope so. I trust so. In fact, we'll find out who shows up this Wednesday night at 6.40 p.m. I got time to keep track of. Sorry. And yours. The third meeting's purpose is to put any new decisions into action. So, those are the three meetings. One is behind us, two before us, and one is just two or three days away. So, thank you for bearing with me. You tell me later if I kept it short. All right. Now, the Galatian error. This is one of my favorite topics and my favorite books. Please open with me to Galatians. And I'm going to quote something. I just thought of it. Um, Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11, he expresses a concern from his apostolic heart. And this is a man who, as we shall see and be reminded of, was so pious, filled with a sense of self-righteousness, that with good conscience, he could lock them up and put them Christians in the slammer because of his upright views of who God is and what he's like. He thought he was doing God's service. And he met, well, first he heard the word preached by Stephen, a martyr who he bear witness that this is a just cause. Let him die the death. And he witnessed that. Anywhere in Scripture, in the New Testament, after Christ's ascension, what do we see? Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. But when Stephen was stoned, what did he say? I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. I forget exactly, but he said standing. Jesus arose from his seated position, which makes a statement, it is finished. And Jesus arose to behold this first and solemn death of one of his witnesses, martyr, witness, martyr. Just means witness, but he died and sealed it with his blood. What a guy, what a hero. And as with that in the back of his mind, in all his pharisaical justifications, he's going to Damascus, and he's gonna, and he's ready to, whoa! Jesus shows up, knocks him to his knees, and he's a changed man.
Was he glorified? No. What about the sanctification process in his life? And some believe, and we're, we don't have time today to, and I'm gonna, in a minute I'm going to try to really jog through a lot of stuff, cover the whole book. In short order, Brother Derek, would you carry me? He's pointing at me. <clears throat> Warn me first, though, please. Or anybody else, you know. Feel free. I don't mind. Where was I? On the road to Damascus, going to Damascus, bearing witness of Jesus, freaking them out of their socks. Okay, they didn't wear socks, but they were like, whoa, what? This guy is like, wasn't he here to do some capital punishment kind of stuff? Issue arrest warrants and do some serious damage to the brotherhood? And here he is preaching Christ. And then he goes away from Damascus for a time. And then like way later in the game, he goes to Jerusalem. And they're like, whoa, hot snake. Or hot potato. <clears throat> Could you just like go back to your hometown where you came from? We're enjoying great peace and tranquility here right now. And he obliges them. But somewhere between Damascus and Jerusalem, Paul alludes in this book of Galatians to a time in his life where he spent, it appears, in the desert of Arabia. Maybe some conjecture even at the Mount Sinai, a famous place known also to somebody in the Old Testament. And perhaps there is when the Rubik's Cube of his mind that was all jumbled up because he didn't have the proper cornerstone properly in place. But when that lodged, and we don't know if it was what I'm saying or just over time or all at once on the road to Damascus, but that Rubik's Cube came into perfect shape. And wow, did he see things differently. All right, let's jump into it. The Galatian era, why did he write this book? And I'm just going to quote one verse. This is not necessarily related, but I think thematically it fits. I fear, he writes to the church at Corinth, I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And that's 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. So there is something to be guarded against. There's something to be guarded, and that is the simplicity that is in the person of Jesus Christ. Be it the means of salvation or the means of sanctification. As he says to the Galatians later, we'll see it. Having started in the Spirit, shall we be made perfect in the flesh and he's going to make his case okay let me entreat help from on high 
Lord, what I say doesn't matter. What you have said does. Help us to study it and compare it with what you teach us in your word, by your spirit. Speak to us. Be our teacher. Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, be in our midst. Confirm your work in our hearts, individually, and in this body, corporately. And help us to be part of who you are and what you're doing in this place and in the world. In a way that's closer, that's deeper, and more meaningful than where we are right now. We thank you for all of the past and ask your help in the present as we move forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Proposition. Be very careful. If it happened to Paul's flock, it could happen here. It could happen to us. It could happen to me. But thankfully, we have this warning, so may that not happen. But we must hear it. We must heed it. Pardon me. I love this book. It's one of the earliest. Depends on which theory you follow. There are two different theories. There's the Northern Galatian and the Southern Galatian theory. What does that mean? Well, what are the geographical boundaries of this place called Galatia? And there's the, the way the Roman Empire defined it, and there's the ancient way it was defined. I won't get into all that. Blah, blah, blah. But it's, it's cool. I think it's interesting. But just to stay out of the weeds, keep to the facts. Some believe this involved the churches of Derby and Lystra, where Paul was at and nearly died where he picked up his son, Timothy. This is a place close to his heart. And it may be one of his earliest letters, second only to Thessalonians. He's addressing the ministry, I don't like calling it that, the work of the Judaizers. Very similar, strikingly similar, which plays very interestingly into the A versus B. Is it this or this? In other words, when Acts 15 happened, had the book of Galatians already been written? Or was it, did that occur after? I'm not giving away, but you might pick up on my theory. All right, so... Chapter 1. Here we go jogging now. We're going to try and keep pace. Chapter 1. I just want, and, and this could be, it's not a formal book study. I'm trying to cover one topic, which is the Galatian error in the big picture. I'm not necessarily doing chapter 1 structural justice, but just wanting to highlight some, some highlights. Okay, so the theme of grace Let's notice it in verses 4 and 15. Actually, 1 through 4. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by men. It's not some man who made me apostle. 
but by Jesus Christ am I an apostle. And by, by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. And all the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, who gave himself for our sins. That he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. And jump in. So I'm, I'm just highlighting the theme of grace. This is what God did for us that we could never do for ourselves. Jesus gave himself for us. That is a gift. That is grace. It's free to me. It cost him something to be sure. Jesus tells us if we follow him, It'll cost us something as well, and we better count the cost, right? But that's a little beside the point. I'm focusing on grace. Secondly, he is addressing in this letter a perversion of the gospel. Chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. I marvel, like, whoa! I marvel that you are so soon removed from him who called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. There's the word grace again. Who has, who, has call, who has called you, moved from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another of the same kind, not another of the same kind, but there be some who trouble you. That means some people and want to or would, if they could, pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we, Apostle Paul and those with me, but though we or an angel from heaven, like Moroni, excuse me, he doesn't say that, does he? Um, but though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than the gospel which you have received. Excuse me, let me go back. Now I better put on my glasses. But though we are an angel from heaven, in verse 8, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached to you, let him be anathema, accursed. As we said before, so we say now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that which you have received, let him be accursed. So is this a big deal? Big deal! Boom! just to try to avoid being obnoxious and going, crash, as much noise as my little frame can ruckus. Okay, so this is a big deal. I believe he's shaking them at the core. He's trying with words, as one can only do being removed by 453 miles, or however far he was, with a pen and ink, but bearing his heart and representing the very person of Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of God, that's what an apostle is. And that's whose writing we are reading. He's talking about the grace of God that cost Christ his life and God raised him from the dead. That's his grace to us. He's talking about a perversion of the gospel, which is a different, not of the same kind, a different kind of gospel. And his point is that his authority, or one of his points here is that his authority is not man-based, but the miracle of Christ. If we keep reading, which I've already alluded to it, so we'll skip it. The miracle 
of Christ changing him and making him what he pins as a new creature. Chapter 2, with the preface, and we're going to jog and dive into a verse midway, but just let me read this summary fashion. With the preface, in verses 1 through 15, with the preface of the non-issue of circumcision, Titus didn't have to get circumcised to be acceptable to James and Peter. Hey, that's a non-issue. James and Peter still acknowledged Paul's apostleship to the Gentiles. And just keep that in the back, back of your head. Circumcision is not an issue to the apostles in Jerusalem. They didn't, force, they didn't make an issue of this with Titus. No problem. Handshake, bro. You go. God bless you. Just remember us poor saints here in Jerusalem losing our jobs, lots of persecution. If you get any money, send it our way. If you could, you know, we're a lot of suffering people around here. Okay, that's chapter 2. Jump into 2.16. Anybody got a life verse? Ever had one? None. One admitted it, too, I see. Okay, I've had about 16 or 453, but I lost count somewhere. But this is one of them here. Oh, I love these verses. All right, knowing that a man is not, we're just uh, 16 and 17 of chapter 2, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. And we're actually punching ourselves in the nose if we, what? Verse 17. But if while we seek, it's like tearing down the house that I just built. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, by what I just said, like believing in Christ to be justified from all of our sins that are pointed out, magnified, and condemn us to death by the law of Moses. You see what he's saying? But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners. This is cool to unpack. What does he mean by that? Okay, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. In other words, if I resort to the law being the source of my justification, as he concludes, and let's jump in there. No, we're going to go there in a minute, so just put that on pause. And basically what he's saying is, there is a major misunderstanding of the law here. And Paul was suffering in Romans. Have you ever heard that Romans is an expansion of the book of Romans. Or you might have heard that Galatians is a miniature of Romans. I think either way seems true, but chronologically, which one came first? All right. <clears throat> anyway, I want to I pop in here and quote his, the same guy, the same guy. It's not really sourcing another source. Because this is Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1, in some more favorite verses, and this is 1 Timothy 5, 
and I want to. Let me do my time check, and I know it's going to smack me hard. Ouch. For time's sake, I won't go into this, but if you want to enjoy the context, start at verse 5. And I'm just going to jump into verse 7 through 9. Desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. But we know that the law is good. If a man use it good, if a man use it lawfully, if a man use it in the proper way, if it's used in the way it was intended to be used, the law is good. But he says, these Judaizers are teaching, and by Judaizers kids or whoever, like I didn't know this till I was an adult, that means that they're trying to say, oh, believe in Jesus, okay, but tag on to that, or excuse me, oh, it's okay if you tag that on to observing Moses. That's a no-no, and Paul's pointing that out. He says, these people want to be teachers of the law, but they don't get it. They don't understand what they're saying or what they're affirming. But we know the law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, and for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongerers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for kidnappers or men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons. And if there be any other thing contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which is, in tr which is committed to my trust, <sighs> pardon me, I quit jogging at some point and started sprinting. Thank you for the water station Romans 3, 21 through 31, and I'm just going to allude to this, and if you want these references later, please feel free to ask me. But again, not only in Romans and Galatians do we see Paul wrestle with this, it is glaring at us in the book of Acts. And there's even things, I mean, I'm trying to study this to the nth degree and can't get far enough. It's like, it seems like there was not enough written on this, but there are clues Look at verse just 31. Do we make void the law? Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid! Yea, we establish the law. And what he's saying is there is a misuse of the law. And I'm accused of saying, I honestly believe this is what Paul's saying. And anybody with any questions for me, please talk to me. I want to learn and know and grow. Paul's saying is, people are out there saying that I'm doing this with Moses. Jesus is on the scene. Believe in Jesus, the law of Moses, the prophets. Ha! Jesus is here. Come to Jesus today. Be reconciled to God. The law will do you no good, no harm. And there is an essence of truth. There's a, a part truth there, but it's not the whole story. The law and the prophets bear witness to this new 
revelation of a way to be reconciled to God that is totally separate from the law. It's in Jesus Christ. And then back to Galatians 2.20 and 21, which we could probably quote together, but just to be sure, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me, and the life I now live, I, the, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness came by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Skipping to 3.1. Christ is dead in vain, if that's the case. Ugh. And that's not what Paul believes or teaches. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? before whose eyes Christ was evidently set forth, crucified among you. And I think that means the graphic style of his preaching. Over to 11 and 13. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God. It is evident. It is plain. For it is written, the just shall live by faith, and the law is not of faith. Proof text from Deuteronomy, quoted also in Romans uh, chapter 10. Not this one, this is from the prophets, but, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Excuse me, the man that doeth them shall live in them. That's quoted in Romans, and it comes from Deuteronomy. In other words, if you want to be justified by the law, you walk on that straight and narrow path. But if you fall off once, you're toast. That's the, the nutshell summation of what that's talking about. And Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by being made a curse for us. Skipping over to 21, the law, is the law then against the promises of God? Oh no, God forbid, for if there had been a law which could have given life, verily righteousness would have come by the law. This is very much what he's saying in, in Romans. Later, I'll maybe get to that. 24 and 27. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. In other words, the law is there to show us our sin, our sinfulness. It's like a mirror. shows me my face is dirty. It never can serve as a fountain by which I can cleanse my face or my heart. But after faith has come... We don't need that schoolmaster any longer, verse 25. You are all children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. So you went from being like little kids under a schoolmaster to mature children adopted into God's family. For as you now, as many as us have been baptized into Christ have put on Jesus Christ. And there's no difference among us. All right, chapter 4, Paul is scolding them underscoring law and flesh. We know the works of the flesh, right? And Romans 6.14, I just want to quote that really quickly. 6.14 says, this fascinates me, both of these verses I'm going to quote, for sin shall not have dominion over you. And what's his proof for that? For you are not under the law, but under grace. 
I'm not under the law anymore. But if I am under the law, sin has dominion over me. Aha! What's the connection? The purpose of the law is to highlight, underscore my sin. And it has a very effective ministry and will condemn me to death. And without Jesus Christ, I will be judged according to my works and cast justly into the lake of fire, forever and ever separated from the just God who created me and gave me a conscience on which is written his laws in which I have knowingly violated. I am a sinner because I sin as well as sin because I'm a sinner, duly condemned. All right. And then 1 Corinthians 15, the wonderful resurrection chapter. Listen to verse 56. The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. These baffled me for a long time, but it's all coming clearer. Romans 8, 7, very familiar to us. The carnal mind is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. It can't be subject to the law of God. It's, it's diametrically opposed. The car, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded... Okay, 8-7. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be... Okay, I already quoted it. So, thus, John, come on the scene, please. And what does he say? Well, Jesus. John's so cool, isn't it? So many things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't have. I think because he was the closest one to him. We get the longest amount of narrative from John about John the Baptist. Why? Because he was one of his disciples. But what does he say to Nicodemus? You must be born again. All right, almost done. And I know that the application is written out. So... Thank you for being so patient as I watch my clock. If we don't include those preface remarks, I'm at 30 minutes almost. Nobody's coming to carry me, so I'll take that as a, a good sign. And the last point is chapters 5 and 6 combined. The flesh and the spirit. Chapter 5, verses 6 through 10, says, For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision avails anything. Well, kind of like a ring shows I'm married, circumcision might show that I'm under the law of God. Made me think of head coverings for ladies. I don't want to get into the synagogue door check for sure, and I'll probably, hopefully not regret saying that, but I'm definitely moving on. As the circumcision is basically saying, I'm in line with Moses. He's saying, that doesn't accomplish anything because the law can never justify a person. It's of no use. Okay, 
Let's try and keep going. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision avails anything. No fruits, no, no result. It doesn't get you where you want or need to go. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision avails anything nor uncircumcision, whether you're a Jew or a Greek, whether you're circumcised or not, in, on either side of that fence, zero, it accomplishes nothing but faith. That's what makes a difference. But faith, which works by love. Oh, to park there. But Let's keep going to verse 10. You ran well. You did run well. Who hindered you that you should not obey the truth? After telling them, I said scolding, he says, I stand in doubt of you. Are you like born again or you're not? This persuasion that they're listening to, this influence that's... This doesn't come from him who calleth you. Echoes back to chapter 1. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Sprinkle a little bit of this uh, yeast into the loaf, and it's going to take. It's going to affect the whole group of you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you through the Lord that you will do be none otherwise minded. But he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment, whosoever he be. I.e., no respect of persons. This is the Lord's judgment, says the apostle among the church at Galatia. And he's drawing a line in the sand, as it were, about are we justified by the deeds of the law? Does circumcision have anything to do with that? Or is it straight up by faith in Jesus Christ? Excuse me, bam. That's where he's drawing that line. Chapter 6, verse 15. Same thing in different words. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision avails anything nor uncircumcision. But a new creature. That's what makes a difference! And only that and nothing else. Look and search. Run and find. You'll find nothing. Like Job out there, or one of those guys saying, I've been here, there, and everywhere, up the hills and down the rills, and I looked and couldn't find. Where is the secret of wisdom? One thing, fear the Lord. Where is righteousness to be found? In Christ alone, through faith. What do you get when you get A plus B? C. You get Christ. You get a new creature. And that's the only thing that'll make a difference. And if you got that difference, you good. And you need nothing else. And you go with me, and you go with God, and we all good. Contrast 5, 14, and 15. What's that say? For all the law is fulfilled in one word. Even in this, love your neighbor as yourself. 15. But if you bite... You ever been bit? I was bit by a Doberman Shepherd as a paper boy. I had that sucker on my arm, and I'm going, Ow! 
And I think I cried out, and the owner came out. I was kind of paralyzed as a 13, 14-year-old kid, and that did something. I thought, if this ever happens again, I need to be prepared to kill that dog if necessary. But that owner came out, and he, he ran off. But man, he sunk his teeth in. But think of that. What's happening in Galatia is some Judaizers are saying, I want you on my team. Because if I can get your foreskin on my, on my Boy Scout suit as a badge, I'm going to feel pretty good about that. And I'm going to feel like I've recruited you to the side of righteousness. And that's one more for the kingdom of God as I misunderstand it. And what are they doing? They're working division in the church of Galatia for whom Christ died to deliver us from this present evil age that we might be reconciled and have peace with God and peace with each other. Ah, the obligatory scene. Okay, and so Paul says, but if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. What is this? What's the end of it going to be? I bite you, you bite me. I bite you, and you bite me. I'm without an arm, you're without a leg. Keep going, and we're all going to be a puddle of blood and mess on the floor. This is not good. This is ugly. This is bad. Stop it! I was told my grandma would start breaking plates and throwing them on the floor. Her husband died when she was young. She hated to see the boys fight. That's, that was her trick and technique. Maybe it only took once, or they used a lot of paper plates after that. Anyway, sorry, but, but fighting, this is not right. This is dog eat dog, or in, in uh, think of Unborn babies, if you want. In China, you know why? They made a one-world pout. Where did that come from? That was not intentional, nor is it something that I necessarily believe. I'll think about that later. Anyway, <clears throat> do you know why one-child policy was started in China? Because there was a fear at, at the leadership level that... If we don't, our population is going to just fill the earth and there will be such poverty and want of bread that it will become a dog-eat-dog -dog society. So they said one each. That's a legitimate fear, is it? No, not justifiable according to this book. But that's a humanistic fear without God in your view. Anyway, bite and devour. That's, that's the negative theme to avoid. And 6.12, what's 6.12 say? As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh. Opposite of Paul in Philippians chapter 3 where he said, oh yeah, I could boast it up too, but I count it all less than, you know, manure. As many people as are wanting to make a fair show in the flesh, they are the ones who are constraining you to be circumcised. Only lest they should suffer persecution for the law. Excuse me. 
only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire you to be circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. But God forbid that I should glory save or accept for in this one thing will I glory in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified unto me and I am crucified unto the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creature. I heard that. I'm gonna, it's all reading from here, so I'm guessing three minutes or less. Be careful that their error is not ours. For where envying and strife is, James tells us, is every kind of evil. And it's devilish, sinful and devilish. That's what fleshly is. The law was given to show God's perfect righteousness, restrain sin, it can never resolve it except by death. And it was given to show us our need for Jesus if we want to have life. All right, the flesh problem is solved. The flesh problem or the sin in our flesh, that problem is solved in Jesus Christ by means of a new creature that comes by faith on the offer of love that God made to us. A new operative principle is in place, and that's called love. And that's where we have perfect liberty, to love and to serve one another. Galatians 5.1 tells us, stand strong in that liberty that we now have in Jesus. God gives us a new nature, like Jesus' nature, as John says, my meat is to do thy will. So we have a new nature, crying, Abba, Father, we seek to be pleasing to our Heavenly Father, not simply to do what He says, but to be pleasing to Him. This behavior cannot be legislated, scripted, or otherwise contrived. It is the organic outflow of being a new creature in Christ Jesus who makes us free from the law, which condemns us, and frees us to love God and love one another. The strife, the envy, is from the flesh. It is not from God's Spirit. It is not from the new nature, nor from the law. We must address it, call it for what it is, separate from it. If any man has been overtaken in this fault, the Galatian fault, thinking that law or any writings of man can fix our problem, we should address it, even as Paul addressed Peter. He stated the offense and why it was wrong. In other words, he understood how the truth is being contradicted. And I think that's what our... I'm coming off script a little bit. That's, isn't that what we want to be unified around as truth? And he did it. All right. In other words, he underscored how the truth is being contradicted, Paul with Peter. And he did not do it in any underhanded way, nor was it for the hurt of the other person, but for their correction, that is, Paul to Peter. And when we get to Acts 15, we find Peter is crystal clear on this matter. 
of how is the law and the gospel related to each other. And so may we be, not having strife and envy, not biting and devouring one another, but with all lowliness, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, not allowing compromises to the truth, oh no, but confronting them in love, not to get our way, but to honor God and His Son Jesus, in whom He is well pleased. Let's live for God's pleasure, not our own, depending on Christ not ourselves, nor any of man's device, but depending on Christ alone in and through His Spirit in us. Heavenly Father, I have, not, I have failed to keep my goal. Thank you that I won't be judged at the Bema for it. Or I may be. I set up false expectations to be so short. But I'm so long, though I'm so short. Help me. Help each of us to ingest and digest your word, your truth. And, O oh Lord, not that we may dissect it, but that be dissected by it as need be. Not to scruple over it and judge it, but to be judged by it. Not to stand in, in judgment over it or to figure out what it says, but to understand it that we may know who we really are in your presence and to be conformed to the image of your Son. We need you, and we thank you that we have you. May we not be in any way resisting you, but open arm to you, even as you are to us, in the person of Christ, who died for us and rose again. Thank you for your reconciliation to us. Help us enjoy the fellowship we have in your Son. Help us over these differences and misunderstandings and hurts to, to settle it all your way in, in speaking the truth in love and being clothed with all humility and seeking to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In Jesus' name, amen.